welcome everybody. So glad that you could be here today. I'm thankful to see you. And if this is your very first time with us today, welcome uh, to New Life. We are starting a brand new series today called Rescued, a study of Exodus. But before we get to that, I'd like to say a few things just about what's happening this week. I am thrilled not only to be starting this series, but also the fact that we are launching a whole new season of life groups here at New Life. And I'm happy to tell you that this week there will be 47 life groups meeting throughout Northwest Arkansas. That was really awesome. And it also means that uh, in those life groups, that makes up 541 people from our church, adults. That is awesome. Great job for signing up there. If you did not get into a life group, you still can. Here's how you do that. Go to your app and then uh, tap on the connect icon. And then you're going to see, you're going to scroll down. It's going to say, I want to join a life group. Click on that and just follow the steps. And uh, Pastor Cody, who was just up here, he'll do everything he can to find you a life group, get you plugged in, and so you can be a part of it as well. Also, I want to tell you this, life group study questions are back as well, and they're located out in the atrium, um, mounted in an acrylic holder on that first pillar as you walk out this door, and uh, we'd love for you to take those. Now, if you don't know what life group study questions are, all of our life groups are studying the same thing, and so everybody's encouraged to take some study notes, and, um, and inside, when you open them up, you're going to see there's going to be kind of an introduction to this week's study in your life group, and there's a series of questions. Um, this week, there's eight questions, and they're designed to help generate discussion and deeper learning in your life group. And so the idea is you'll take the study guide home with you, you'll, you'll read through it, you'll listen to the sermon, obviously, read through the questions, and, and, and answer some of them, just have it in your mind, so when you get together with your life group this week, you are ready to have a great um, interaction with them and, and, and mutual learning together. And then on the back, there is some mission emphasis. So we've been talking about Ozark Christian College the last two weeks, and here's some things you can be praying about for them. Next week, we're going to highlight North Burma Christian Mission. Um, Our missionary that we support over there, Ron Morse, he'll actually be with us in person at the end of this month. So we're going to be talking about that mission and and praying for them and giving you more information about how you can come and interact with Ron when he's here. But this is a very interactive thing, and we hope you'll start taking these every week. And also, just to let you know, if you don't take a paper one, all of this is electronic in the app. So if you look at, at life group questions in the app, just click that. You see the same thing. Also, if you like to take notes during the sermon, right next to that icon in the app is called Sermon Notes. You click that and it opens up to all the scripture that I'll be using today and boxes for you to take notes in. We just try to make it easy for you, and uh, but those resources are there for you. Hey, as we get started in this series today, I would like to begin by asking you a question, all right? This is going to kick off our whole Exodus study. How many of you in this room remember what life was like before the internet? All right, quite a few hands went up. I certainly remember what life was like before the internet. Now, my two teenage sons, I've got two boys. One is 14, one's 17. They cannot imagine a world without the internet. They cannot envision a time when nobody on the planet had a, had a cell phone. And um, they have no idea of a time when you couldn't be connected to the internet or you couldn't say things like, hey, Siri, hey, Google. You know, hey Alexa, and then have them spit out whatever information that you want. They can't, they, they just can't fathom that. I mean, I try to tell my boys, they can't figure it out, but I try to tell them the closest thing that uh, I had to a text message when I was your age is something called a stamp. Then you had to get it and lick it and put it on an envelope and take it to the post office. And it would take days for the person you wanted to send a message to, to get it. They can't imagine a world when that's how people communicated. I remember a world before online movie streaming, before Netflix, before Hulu, before Disney Plus, before Amazon Prime. There was no such thing back in the day called a DVR. 
If you wanted to watch a show that started at eight, you better be in front of your TV at 8 p.m., all right? Or you're just gonna miss out. That's the way it was. Um, there was no such concept or idea that you could pause live TV or that you could fast forward through commercials. Do you know what, do you remember what commercials used to be for us? That was our bathroom break. That was when we had to go get a snack and you had just like two or three minutes to get it all done and be back in front of the TV because if you weren't back in time, you just missed out, right? There's no going back. Back then, there was no such thing as binge watching. That was not a concept that any of us knew back then. In fact, I would say the closest thing that any of us back then knew about binge watching was maybe this. Go down to Blockbuster and rent an entire season of a show that had already been out for a couple years because it took a while. And it's a show you already watched, but maybe if you're lucky, you can rent the entire series because they broke it up into boxes. But you know what happened. Somebody else had checked out the few episodes you wanted or they never returned it, so you're really hard to get the whole season. That's what we knew as binge watching. Not today, binge watching, you just watch one episode right after the other, boom, boom, boom. No, I'll tell you, if you remember that era though, if you remember what it was like back then, then you know what it felt like when you were watching something really awesome, like the Dukes of Hazard, or, um, <laughs> or the A-Team, or Airwolf, remember that one? Airwolf, or Chips, one of my personal favorites. You know that feeling when you're watching something really awesome like that and you're watching the clock and you know that the, the hour is almost up and this show is almost over and, and you're getting to the very end and, and right at the end, you, you know that feeling when the screen just freezes like the Duke boys are, are jumping over the river and the screen freezes and you read these horrible words, to be continued. Remember that? Oh. Kids today will never understand if, if they ever see a to be continued, you know what they do? Next, click, next season, click, we just move on. No, 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 they'll never understand what it was like to wait an entire week to find out if they made it across that river or an entire year off until they got to the next season. They'll never know. This past spring, we finished a 26 week long series through the book of Genesis and in the final chapters of that book, we read about Joseph's life and how he saved the Egyptians from starvation and how he makes peace with his brothers and they all wind up in Egypt together. And the book of Genesis ends like this in chapter 50, verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. That's it, the end. And you read it and you're like, the end? That's how it ends. That can't be the end. That's the ending of the book of Genesis. And I'm here to tell you today, it's not the end. When you get to the end of Genesis, it's like your favorite TV show, that there's a freeze frame and the words to be continued. You know, in fact, if, if I could add scripture to, if I could add my own words to the Bible, which I can't, by the way, but if I could, hypothetically, I would add a Genesis chapter 50, verse 27. And it would only have three words. And it would just say, to be continued. Because the story that God started to write in Genesis, that incredible story of creation and that story of Adam and Eve that was in this perfect world until it was marred by sin, that incredible story that he started to write in Genesis did not end at the end of Genesis. That story which chronicled how the world had grown very wicked, so wicked by sin that God decided to destroy the earth, saving just Noah and his family through an ark. And then God repopulated the earth through Noah and his family. But what we learn early still in the book of Genesis is that sin was still a problem. 
And then God makes this promise to a guy named Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to raise up your family. I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. You're going to have a son. And your family is going to go on and become a great nation. And God promised him that. And what's most important about Genesis, though, is that this great nation was going to bring about a blessing to the whole world. Right there in the earliest pages of Genesis, we start to see the hints, the, 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 the head nods towards the reality that there was going to be coming someone to fix it all. So the story that God started writing in the book of Genesis should be in with to be continued. In fact, if there was such a thing as binge reading scripture and you got to the end of Genesis and you hit next, next episode, you're going right to the book of Exodus. If you haven't done so already, would you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter one? Exodus chapter one, because that's where we're gonna be. It's the second book of the Old Testament. And Exodus one, what you're gonna find there is that it is a continuation right where Genesis leaves off. And it continues with this incredible story of what God is doing with this family. So let's read it together. Let's start in verse one of chapter one. It begins like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all of his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So the book of Exodus begins with the listing off of these names. These are the names of Joseph's brothers. If you recall from our study in the book of Genesis, or if you've read it, Joseph comes to prominence at the end of Genesis, and that, that happens because his brothers, these brothers minus Benjamin, they, they are jealous of him, they take him as a prisoner, they put him into a dry cistern, and then they sell him off into slavery, and that's how Joseph ends up in Egypt. And we know that Joseph saves the Egyptians with, you know, and that God used him to, to highlight there's gonna be a famine and, and he helps them prepare and Joseph is a hero. And then, and then he reunites with his brothers many years later. And they are scared to death that Joseph is gonna retaliate against them for what they did when he was a teenager. But that famous part at the very end of Genesis when, when he pulls his brothers in in chapter 50 and he says, hey, what you guys meant for evil, let me tell you something, God meant it for good. The saving of many lives, and we are good, and, and we're good again. And harmony was restored in this family. So here you have 70 members now of Joseph's family, him and his brothers. And this family begins to grow. This family is called in the Bible by three names, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and the Jews. So if you hear me at any point in our study through the, the book of Exodus say, Hebrews, Israelites, or Jews, please know I'm just talking about the same group of people. These words are used different times for the same group. That's all I mean. So this family that started with 70 was the nucleus of the Hebrew or the Israelite or the Jewish people. And they started to grow, and they grew rapidly. Then soon there was, there was children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. And this family really exploded with growth, to the point that this family was divided by the names of the brothers. They became the 12 tribes 
of Israel. And that is language you read all throughout the Bible. People would identify themselves by what tribe they were from. In other words, what brother of Joseph's did they descend from? And that's the 12 tribes of Israel. What we need to understand, what's very important that we establish here in our very first time together studying Exodus, is that it is the explosive growth of this family that sets, sets the stage for the entire book of Exodus. I mean, it is the explosive growth of this family that, uh, that really unleashes the most awe-inspiring, miraculous rescue story that you're gonna read anywhere in the Bible or outside of the Bible. Now, I know many of you have already read Exodus and you are familiar with many of the events of this incredible book. And if you are, then you know just how miraculous it is. These Hebrews were, this, you know, this family, uh, over time, they were turned into slaves and they were forced into hard labor. And this family cried out to God for help and God hears their cries and God raises up a man named Moses to come and free the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. And in doing that, we see it accompanied by all these miraculous signs. We're talking about plagues and standoffs and escapes and pursuits and all the drama that you can imagine, all culminating when Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And they are being pursued by Pharaoh's army. And if you know the story, you know they come to the Red Sea and God parts the water and the Israelites go across on dry ground. And Pharaoh's army says, we can do that too. And they chase them across the sea. And the Israelites get to the other side and God looks out and sees Pharaoh's army in the middle and he says, you're toast. Whoosh, boom. Drowns them. Toast, toast is in the Hebrew somewhere. I'll find it before we're done. And the Israelites are, are saved. This is exciting stuff. This is what I'm trying to share with you. And it all started with this one family. The family that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This family that wound up in Egypt together that grew so large that this new Pharaoh who rose to power took one look at this large family and he's like, uh-uh, this cannot stand and he became very fearful of what this powerful family could become. Now, with that, let's look at verse eight. Here's what happens. Then a new king. Now, Moses wrote the book of Exodus and sometimes he says, this is a king, and sometimes he refers to him as a pharaoh. Now, this is the same person here. Whether you call him a king or a pharaoh, this is, remember, remember Moses is writing to the Israelite people. They could have understood later in, in years, this is the king. It's just the supreme leader of the country. So you're gonna see these titles alternate. We're talking about the same person. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with labor and mortar and, and mortar and, and brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You know what I find very interesting when I read this part of the text? I find it interesting that this Pharaoh had never heard of Joseph. 
I mean, when you know the story of Joseph and all that Joseph meant, what he meant to the Egyptians and how he had saved them, don't you find it a little bit odd that a Pharaoh would have no knowledge or interest or understanding of the context of where these people came from? He just sees them as a threat. You know, that question, maybe understanding a little bit of the timeline will help us answer why this Pharaoh didn't really know anything about Joseph. Because by the time you get to verse 8, this family that started with 70 people in Egypt, it was 150 years of time passes before we get to this Pharaoh. So verses 1 to 7 represents a year of about, a, about 150 years. And you know, a lot of things can happen in 150 years, like a family can grow quite large in 150 years of time. You know what else can happen in 150 years? You can forget and you can never learn history. I would imagine with this Pharaoh, there was some of both. I think there was a lot of forgetting and there was a lot of never learning taking place. And so when this new Pharaoh comes to power, he either never learned or they had forgotten completely what Joseph and this family was all about. Take, it, take for today as an example. What is significant about today in America? It's 9-11. 21 years ago, today, our nation was attacked when hijackers took over four commercial airliners and they crashed two of them in the World Trade Center, one in the Pentagon and one into a field in Pennsylvania because heroic passengers heard what was going on and they fought back and they probably saved hundreds if not thousands of lives when that plane went down. I can remember everything about that day and I would imagine those of you who were old enough remember that day and you close your eyes just like me, you can be right back there. I'm right back in my basement, in my home, in Decatur. Kirsten had already gone to work and for whatever reason I had the news on, which I never, never do. But I remember turning on the news, eating my old bowl of cereal and I see the tower on fire. And then a few minutes later, I watched live on TV and you know the shot, the plane coming in. I'm like, what? I'm like, what is going on? I remember it like it was yesterday. But do you realize that most students in college today weren't even born when 9-11 happened? You realize that, right? Most of the students walking the campus of the University of Arkansas weren't alive when 9-11 happened. And since most kids don't really have a lot of significant memories before the age of five, that means that most people in the United States who are you know, in their mid-20s, 25, 26, 27, they don't have any real firsthand experience with 9-11 or memories of the, attack, of the attack. So what that means is everything, every last detail they've ever learned about 9-11, they learned through the lens of history. They didn't experience it. They had to learn it. And that's different. It's quite different than actually living through it in real time. So with that in mind, let, let's pretend, let's fast forward here in the United States 150 years from now. 150 years from now, will Americans still remember 9-11? They will. I mean, it's forever a part of our history. But 150 years from now, will it feel the same as it does to us today, on this day? I don't imagine it will. If I had to guess, 150 years from now, 9-11 might get a mention on the evening news, but people won't be connected to it like they are today because we forget or we never learned the history. 
I would imagine that there's some of that, if not a lot of that, happening in Egypt back in Exodus chapter 1. 150 years go by, and this is not in the age of the internet. This is not the age of mass communication and social media and where everybody videos everything every moment of every day of their lives and post it. This is not that day. I don't think it's surprising at all that you have a, a Pharaoh rise to power 150 years later who really doesn't know anything about Joseph or, quite frankly, care about its history, and he just sees a threat. And I read that, and it, and it really brings something to my attention that's very strong, and it really just kind of hit me as I was studying this text. And I think we should keep our eyes on something today, church, and it's this, that there is always a new generation that has never heard about Jesus, there is always a new generation. There's always a group coming up behind us who has never heard about Jesus. So as you get deeper into the book of Exodus and you get on into the other books of the law, those first five books of the, of the Old Testament, it's not a surprise that, that Moses made it a huge deal that the Israelites never forget the rescue that happened out of Egypt and how he commanded them, you will teach your children and you will do things to remind yourself all the time because you cannot forget the great thing that God has done for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this is uh, right before the Israelites take possession of the promised land. Moses says this to the people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit up and when you're at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. There's always gonna be a generation that doesn't know anything about Jesus. Just like it was in Moses' day, there's always gonna be a generation that has to be taught about the great rescue of the Hebrew people. And I think it'd be wise of us if we took a lesson of our brothers of old to impress Jesus on our children, to talk about the Lord often in our homes, not just at home, but when we're out on the road. And when you lie down and when you get up, I would say before you go to bed and when you get up, talk about the Lord. Let him be on your lips always. Have physical things in your house to remind you of what the Lord has done for you. Keep a presence of Christ in your home and everywhere you go so that we don't forget and that we teach what has happened, this great rescue of our lives by Jesus. Why do we take communion every week when we gather together? So that we never forget the most important thing that has ever happened to any of our lives, and that is that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and to shed his blood, and three days later, he rose to life so that we could have new life and one day walk in heaven in glory with him. That's why we do it every single week because we cannot become disconnected from the most important part of our faith, Jesus. So this new Pharaoh, he knew nothing of Joseph. He was completely disconnected from the past. He just saw a danger. He saw a group rapidly growing. So he takes action. He makes them slaves. He makes them work the fields. He oppresses them. He confines them to just making bricks all day. Then he puts slave masters over them to ensure that they meet their quota every day of how many bricks they are to make. It was a miserable experience. It was a miserable existence for these Hebrews. I don't think there's any of us in this room today that knows anything about history that could argue the fact 
that there's no other people in recorded history who has suffered as much as the Jewish people. And what we're reading about here in Exodus chapter one is the very first instant, instance of Hebrew persecution in the history of the world. This is where it all started. This is the first time that they are discriminated against because of who they were. And many, many years before this, God predicted that it would all happen. If you go back to the book of Genesis, and I'll make this argument again, the book of Genesis sets the whole stage for the rest of the Bible. There's a reason why we started with Genesis and then went to Exodus, and not why we started with Exodus and went back to Genesis, because Genesis sets the stage for Exodus. So we see this persecution, and we understand from Genesis, God predicted it. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. I am gonna raise up a son out of you and you are gonna have a mighty family and this family is gonna be a blessing to the whole world. But listen to what God told Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 13. The Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country. God is talking about his descendants being in Egypt. That's exactly what he's talking about. It's not their own and they will be enslaved, and they will be mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possession. God predicted it. So what you're reading in chapter one of the book of Exodus is the fulfillment of what God said was gonna happen way back in Genesis 15. In Genesis chapter 12, verse three, God also said this to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God keeping his promise to Abraham. But you know, as you keep reading, despite the persecution, despite the harsh treatment of these slave masters, the Israelites, they continued to grow and they continued to multiply and God continued to bless their lives. You're also gonna see something in the book of of Exodus um, and and and, and if you haven't read it yet, I'm just gonna blow the ending for you. You ready? The Egyptians lose, and they lose hard. And the Israelites win, and they win big. But I just wanna point something else that's going on with this persecution. This harsh treatment that the Hebrews are getting here in chapter one, is that the doing of one fearful Pharaoh? Or is there something else going on here? Is this just the the actions of a fearful Pharaoh? Or is there something much darker happening in our text? Something more demonic? Is this something that is bearing the evil fingerprints of Satan himself? Let me rewind the clock back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve have just sinned. They introduced sin in the world and now God is handing out the punishments for that sin. Adam and Eve have their eyes open now and they're understanding the full weight of what they have done and they're understanding now the consequences that are gonna come with their disobedience. But not just them, God is handing out his punishment, his consequences to Satan himself. He's learning his new future as well. And and God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
This, my friends, is the very first reference to the coming of the Messiah in the entire Bible. Satan knew way back then in the garden that he would ultimately be defeated. God told him, you're going to get crushed. Now, you're going to take your shots. You're going to go down swinging. But ultimately, the one to come is going to crush you. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not all-powerful like our God is. But I believe it's safe to assume that Satan could see what God was doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Satan fully understood the promises that God made to Abraham. Satan understood that there was going to be a mighty nation that God was going to raise up. And he understood that the one that was going to ultimately crush him was going to come from this nation. So, was this persecution of the Hebrew people the result of a fearful Pharaoh? Or was it really Satan's attempt to cut off the line leading to Christ? Now, what happens next in our text answers that question for me without a doubt. Because what happens next in the text, I think, is a level of evil that goes beyond the capabilities of a man. And what happens next is a level of evil that could only come from one place. Look at the text with me, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Evil? Oh, most definitely. Does this have the fingerprints of Satan all over it? No doubt. Is this shocking to us today? Not so much. Not so much. And that's probably because we live in a country that willfully takes this kind of innocent life over 900,000 times a year. And if you believe the surveys, 61% of our fellow citizens believe that we absolutely have the right to do it. So my question is, is that just, is that just people being people? Is that just our president talking? Is that just a, a number of our governors and our members of Congress? And is, that, uh, is that just a lot of politicians at a lot of different levels just talking? Is that a number of our educators? Is that our actors and actresses? Is this is our influencers and so forth? Is this our sports figures? Is this just people saying how they feel? Or... Are we seeing in real time satanic influence over our nation and our people? It's easy to see the fingerprints of God all over our earth. But you know what? It's just as easy to see the fingerprints of Satan on this place too. What we are reading here in Exodus chapter 1 is a fearful Pharaoh who I believe under satanic influence orders or initiates a state-sponsored genocide that demanded the killing of all Hebrew babies. 
It is a miracle that Moses survived such an order. But he would survive it and he would go on to save his people. Do you know who else survived a very similar order? Jesus did. When Jesus was born, King Herod ordered that all the baby boys in Bethlehem be killed. But Jesus survived that too. And Jesus went on to save the world. Friends, there is, you need to understand this, and I will point it out to you throughout the book of Exodus. There is a parallel between God's rescue of the Israelites through Moses, through the wilderness, into the promised land. There is a parallel from what Jesus did, how he sacrificed himself to save his people, to lead them through the wilderness of this earth into our promised land, which is heaven. These two storylines parallel each other in scripture, and I will make sure that you see it every time it's expressed in the text. So Jesus survived a very similar order. I will tell you this, the bright spot in this entire evil movement that was happening in, in Egypt on that day were these two heroic midwives named Shippa and Pura. Now look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God. And that, my friends, is the key right there. Fearing the Lord drives behavior. Fearing the Lord drives what we do as Christians. These women feared God and it drove their decisions. They did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Yep, they lied to his face. <laughs> Bold-faced lion right here in the Bible. I don't know if there's a one of us in this room today that can fully appreciate the heroism of these two women. They are some of the first heroes, real heroes that we see in the Bible. Now most likely, Shippa and Pua um, were probably the, like the head nurses over all the midwives. They were the ones that were, that were in charge because there was too many babies being born for two midwives. So they probably oversaw all the midwives or at least these are the two that are singled out in the text as defying the king's order. And if you get into the Hebrew and understand what their names mean, what they did becomes even more incredible. You see, because the name Shipra in Hebrew means beautiful one. And the name Pua in Hebrew means splendid one. So these two women absolutely lived up to their names. What they did was beautiful and what they did was splendid. And it's the very first instance in the Bible of what we would call today as civil disobedience. In other words, refusing to obey a law because of a higher good. Civil disobedience. You know, uh, this week when you meet with your life groups, um, you're gonna come to question seven in your study guide, and that question is this. When is it okay, and what is the criteria for Christians today to practice civil disobedience? Oh, you're gonna have a good time in life group this week, let me tell you. I can't wait to hear how that goes. What we should remember quite specifically is exactly what these women did for us. Yep, you heard me right. What they did for every last one of us in this room. Because they rescued these babies, you and I will be raised from the dead one day. You said, how is that possible? What are you talking about? If you don't have these two women, you do not have Moses. 
you do not have the Exodus. Without these two women, you do not have a King David. You do not have a Mary. You do not have Jesus. The women in the first chapter of Exodus are so important that when Moses wrote down the account of what happened, he names them by their personal names so the whole world would remember their heroism. You know whose names we don't know a thing about in Exodus chapter one? Pharaoh. We have no idea who his, what his name is. And you think about what, what Pharaohs are. I mean, Pharaohs, all they cared about was people knowing who they were and remembering. That's why they built the pyramids and you have these great tombs so that everybody would remember forever who these guys were. We don't have a clue who this Pharaoh was. We can take our best guess. I kind of wish Moses would have named him. That would have made the dating of the Exodus a lot easier. I can promise you that. What does that tell you that we don't know his name, but we know their names? Should tell us a lot. And Pharaoh was angry with these women, let me tell you, but God was quite pleased. Look at verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Did you hear that? Their act of heroism was rewarded with the children of their own. Now imagine this day. This is a day when having a child became a very dangerous thing. This is long before you had ultrasounds where you could determine what the gender of the baby was. A Hebrew woman would become pregnant and that excitement was matched with fear. Nine months I'm gonna carry this baby and I will not know if it will survive until the day it's born. Scary times. And God blessed these women with families of their own. You know what this blessing of God communicates to me today anyway? It shows us just how precious children are to God. But Pharaoh was like, forget these midwives. I'm taking it up even another level. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. That's the Nile River. But let every girl live. And there you have it. The stage for the great rescue, the stage of the Exodus has been set. The stage has been set for God to put on display his mighty power for all to see. You know, I think one of the most powerful lessons from the book of Exodus, and you're gonna see this as we study our way through it, especially when the Israelites leave Egypt and God's got them out in the wilderness and he's teaching them all about him and what their relationship is gonna look like and how they're gonna live. Something that you're gonna see so clearly is that this story of Exodus, it's not just about God getting his people out of Egypt. This is really about God getting Egypt out of his people. There's a big difference between those two things. It's not just getting them out of Egypt. It's not just a physical thing. This is about getting Egypt out of them. This is a spiritual thing that God is doing. God is setting apart a people all unto himself and they are gonna be a holy people, the set apart ones. And the same is true for the church today. Following the Lord, or what we might say, getting saved is not just about getting people out or get away from the world. I'm telling you what God is doing in our lives today. He is getting the world out of his people. 
He's getting the world out of his church. And we should see ourselves as holy people because that's what the New Testament calls us. Set apart ones. We are separated from the world. The world's not in us, though we are out of it. We are, it's not in our hearts at all. And there's a bigger picture going on in Exodus. Not just about getting them out of there. It's about getting the things of Egypt, the worldliness, the godlessness out of them. And it will prove to be quite the struggle. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. We actually looked at this scripture last week. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. A thoughtful reading of the book of Exodus leads you to that simple conclusion. We are called and we are rescued to be a holy people unto God. So friends, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. I wanna encourage you this week to read the entire book of Exodus. And if you're really ambitious and you haven't read Genesis, read Genesis and then read Exodus. But read it. If you gotta break it up a little bit every day, do that. Or if, or if you like to binge read like I do and just read it all together, but read it and then come back. And if you don't read it, still come back. All right, just still come back. But that's my challenge to you, to read the book of Exodus because our times will be greatly enriched together and your lives will be greatly enriched by the reading of God's word. So let's take up this challenge together. I'm excited about going through the book of Exodus with you. The Lord's gonna show us some awesome stuff. I, I guarantee it. Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you that we could dive deep into the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And I pray, Lord, that you help us clearly see how the stage is set for you to display your mighty strength and your power in the text. And I pray, God, you teach us great lessons today that will enable us to walk with you more holy, more like you every single day. Lord, I pray you fill us up with your word. Teach us what it is that we need to see, God, just by reading your word. And I pray for anybody over in our church family today that is not walking with you right now. Lord, I pray through the simple reading of your word, conviction will come. And they too, Lord, will want to be a part of the set apart ones. Lord, who are heaven bound because of what you did for us. Lord, I would pray that by the time we're done, any person in our church family or in my hearing that doesn't know you will. So Lord, we pray you help us with our study. Help us to be holy. And Lord, I pray you protect us from the evil one who is just as active today as he was in those early days in Egypt. Lord, help us to recognize his fingerprints and help us stand firm in you. So Lord, this is our prayer and we lift it up in your holy name, the name of Jesus.